You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. You start to believe, even worse, you know, that the government is not in control. Alongside these random attacks are also targeted attacks. Militia man, MO, all kind of things. We're a month and a half before the fall of Mosul. You can tell that they are unprepared for fighting. When I left campus, I looked at the faces of people. They, they as if they were escaping a monster running after them. A day later, Nujayfi leaves Mosul. In doing so, he condemned Mosulis to a fate he himself wouldn't face. Among the reasons why we did not go out and leave the city were the statements of Athil al-Nujayfi. We are trapped between the world's most feared terrorist organization and the nation. Sometimes it felt like the world that thinks we are ISIS enablers. Daesh was telling him, you just have to surrender yourself, and he would refuse. And I saw him in the morning. There is no space in his body without a bullet. And they also put uh, another policeman on fire in the ambulance. He was wounded, but they burned him alive. Part two, trapped. In part one of this episode, we covered the events of those three crucial days leading to the fall of Mosul, the little details that matter so much to locals. And so we start part two on June 10, 2014, with the battle for Mosul basically over. Iraqi forces have retreated, and ISIS, for all intents and purposes, now controls Iraq's second largest city. ISIS are also continuing to push personnel and resources over the Syrian border into Iraq to reinforce its eastward push and take advantage of the momentum it had built through June. The harsh, simple reality is that civilian resistance to ISIS in Mosul was absolutely futile, certainly in any overt sense. Now, Omar, what is amazing to me is how quickly the Islamic State began to run the city of Mosul. At the time, it felt like almost overnight that ISIS were in control and running the city. From 6 to 10 June, there is confusion and uncertainty. Everyone is wondering what is going on. Then, on 13th of June, ISIS put up their charter of the city, which basically told people that they were now in charge and to continue our lives as usual. Before we knew it, the signs on the streets had changed. ISIS controlled the government departments, and ISIS militants now manned all the checkpoints. ISIS were now implementing their system of control as the ruling government of one of Iraq's largest cities. In those early weeks and months, ISIS worked very hard to create the sense that the city was back to normal. Creating the perception of normality was really important for Daesh in those early weeks of occupying Mosul because it wanted to convince Maslawis to stay in the city or to return if they had left. But this perception of things somehow going back to normal under ISIS control was also relative because it was Daesh, it was ISIS, that had fueled instability in Mosul for weeks and months before attacking it. And then, of course, had made that sense of crisis even worse during those three crucial days we covered in part one. Can you remind our audience of what ISIS did, Omar? They let the people 
go crazy, confusion, instability, fear. They let them receive the messages of hatred that came from the rest of the Iraqis. They made sure that it reached the people of Mosul, and they created all of this confusion. And Daesh just came as the savior of the people and the only entity that can bring stability to the city, which Daesh did. And that's how they played the game. They created the chaos, and then they ended that chaos. Those people came with a full plan, with a full administrations were already designed with a full propaganda machine that ran the campaign from day one. When thinking about the Islamic State's capture of Mosul and its ability to occupy and then control the city, I can't help but go back to some of the key lessons that this group learned after its near total destruction in 2007-8. That period of the Islamic State's history, which so many academics, journalists and policymakers skip over between about 2008-9 to 2013, is in fact the most important for understanding its capture of Mosul. It is arguably amongst the most revered periods within the group's own ranks, and it's, of course, why we spent so much time on it in episode two. For all the operational and strategic nuances that emerged from that period of reflection in the organization, but also testing with action, almost all of it came back to, we need a better understanding of our adversaries. We need a better understanding of our constituents and a better understanding of that fluid mix of social, political, military, economic, and cultural dynamics that characterize that ever-changing thing called context. There is something else too. The Islamic State understands much better than its adversaries that winning, whatever that may mean at any given point in time, is not about achieving some imaginary perfection. It is about the never-ending effort to outcompete your adversaries. That's the tragedy that happened. That the only people who really understood the reality of Mosul was the wrong party, which is Daesh. And that's why I don't blame the people of Mosul. When I read this kind of like articles, the people of Mosul supported Daesh, the people of Mosul joined Daesh, etc. They know nothing about what was happening in the city. Daesh understood what the people needs. Daesh spoke to their fears. Daesh spoke to their grievance. Yet the problem is Daesh is not what the people wanted. But they were the only ones who actually met the needs of the people. The key concept here is functionality. The city was seen to be functioning again. In fact, functioning better than it was under the government. This was not lost on Iraq's political leaders. Here is former Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. When Daesh went in, in the first few months, uh, people were very relaxed. Um, one of the students told me that it used to take me an hour and a quarter to get from home to the university because of the security checkpoints. But he says, now it's taking me 10 minutes to get there. 
The sense that Mosul was functioning in those early weeks and months of Daesh occupation was like a, a mirage. It was an illusion created by Daesh out of the chaos it helped to create. But it was also an illusion created by the contrast with the months and years of Mosul's poor governance and administration. When I interviewed former Governor Nujayfi about what happened after Daesh took over Mosul city, he said this. The Mosulis welcomed Daesh. I would say the change with happiness as they stayed in the city and blamed us, even after I left Mosul. I used to receive phone calls from the Mosulis telling me that ISIS are better than you. They open the streets, they're treating us better than you did, and we're comfortable with them. This is what I used to hear from Mosulis over a month after I left Mosul. I suspect Mr. Nujafi's anecdote may be more revealing than he is aware, especially given its implications for how his constituents perceived the effectiveness of Mosul's administration and governance prior to June 2014. Yes, it sadly says a lot. To accuse Mosulis of wanting Daesh is deeply offensive to the vast majority of Mosulis. But then, to admit that in those first weeks, people were mockingly saying that the city was functioning better under Daesh than the previous government is not the smear it was meant to be. In fact, it says a lot about that competition an insurgency tries to win. Not by being perfect, but by being better than their opponents. As Mosul I, these were the kind of issues I was trying to come to terms with. On June 17, you wrote your first entry as Mosul I. Could you read it for us? 2.30 p.m. 17 June 2014, Mosul. What I have witnessed today is very difficult to express in writing. There are lots of fabrications and false news that have been spread by the media. However, they are contradicted by the reality on the ground. My job as an historian requires ambiast approach, which I am going to adhere to and keep my personal opinion to myself. I will only communicate the facts I see. Less than two weeks later, on 29 June 2014, the Islamic State declared that it had established its so-called caliphate with its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as caliph. We clarify to the Muslims that with this declaration of a caliphate, it is incumbent upon all Muslims to pledge allegiance to the Caliph Ibrahim and to support him. The legality of all emirates, groups, states, and organizations become null by the expansion of the caliphate's authority and arrival of its troops to their areas. The Islamic State's propaganda machine released an audio message on July 1st from its reclusive leader, now self-declared caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, titled, A Message to the Mujahideen and the Muslim Ummah in the Month of Ramadan. Oh Muslims everywhere, glad tidings to you and expect good. Raise your head high, for today, by God's grace, you have a state and caliphate, 
which will return your dignity, might, rights and leadership. It is a state where the Arab and non-Arab, the white man and black man, the Easterner and Westerner are all brothers. It is a caliphate that gathered the Caucasian, Indian, Chinese, Shami, Iraqi, Yemeni, Egyptian, Maghrebi, American, French, German, and Australian. God brought their hearts together, and thus they became brothers by His grace, loving each other for the sake of God, standing in a single trench, defending and guarding each other, and sacrificing themselves for one another. Therefore, rush, O Muslims, to your state. Yes, it is your state. Rush because Syria is not for the Syrians and Iraq is not for the Iraqis. The earth is God's. O Muslims everywhere, whoever is capable of performing emigration to the Islamic State, then let him do so, because emigration to the land of Islam is obligatory. A few days later, al-Baghdadi appeared in public for the first time. He chose, as the location for his first appearance, the city of Mosul and its most iconic landmark, al-Nuri Mosque with its famed leaning minaret. So this is the basis of the religion, a book that guides and a sword that aids. Indeed, your brothers, the Mujahideen, were blessed with victory by God, blessed and exalted be he and were blessed with consolidation after long years of jihad, patience, and fighting the enemies of God. God guided them and strengthened them to establish this goal. If you want God's promise, then perform jihad for the sake of God, incite the believers, and be patient upon this hardship. If you knew what was in jihad of reward, honor, loftiness, and might in this world and the hereafter, None of you would sit back or remain behind, abandoning jihad. It is the trade that God guided to. For the people of Mosul, the horrors of the Islamic State had only just begun. We need to take our listeners into the Islamic State in Mosul. When it was an insurgency, we took them into the group's inner sanctums. As the architects of its guerrilla military governance and propaganda operations strategized about how to achieve the impossible, to capture major cities and not just implement an Islamic State, but the Caliphate. Now we need to take our listeners into the Islamic State's bureaucracy. Brutality is the word I keep using to describe life under the Islamic State. The brutality and the fear that it creates in people. It is impossible to comprehend unless you were there. But the Islamic State in Mosul were more than just brutal. Our listeners also need to appreciate the speed with which they implemented their system of government, the sophistication of what they did, and how strategic the Islamic State was in almost everything it did. Let's start with speed. The Islamic State implemented a full-spectrum system of control, that is, its system of government, in Mosul, very quickly. And it did this primarily through co-option. The Islamic State's forces came into the city and, wherever possible, simply took over Iraqi government offices, basically told its staff to keep working. 
and it put Islamic State members in as managers. This was possible for a number of reasons. Most importantly, the Islamic State had a history in the city. They knew it well. The Islamic State also had highly sophisticated intelligence collection networks. So they knew where to go, who to copt, who to kill, who to keep, and who to replace. This all helped the Islamic State keep the city functioning after it took over. This strategy of parasitically just taking over government structures and institutions allowed the Islamic State to create a sense of stability for the population, make itself look more competent than it really was, and insert its own personnel as managers. The Islamic State saw it as essential to project an image of being credible and functional as a state, as a government, because according to its ideology, success is the product of God's favour. As this excerpt from the Islamic State's feature-length 2014 film, Flames of War, highlights. The Islamic State was now on showcase for the world to see. The courts were established, the prayer was being enforced, the hudud were being implemented. The people were being invited to good, and the zakat was being collected and distributed. So now we understand the secret to why and how the Islamic State was able to implement its system of government so quickly. It basically just took over what was already there, changed the signs, changed the stamps on the paperwork, and brought in its own managers. What about the sophistication of its governance efforts in Mosul? The reason we know so much about the Islamic State movement from inside the organization, how it thinks and strategizes, is because the Islamic State is obsessed with paperwork. It is obsessed with bureaucracy. And now that it had its government, this obsession went to another level. The Islamic State had departments and offices for basically everything and paperwork for everything, too. Omar, give our listeners some insights into the Islamic State government in Mosul. In the first few days and weeks, there were three government functions that the Islamic State seemed to really focus on. First was the media department. General-level media units were established very quickly in the city. It was very important to Daesh that its media was functioning well. Second was the Islamic State's police and the Hizbah. The police were like any police force. They would patrol the streets, investigate crimes, and were always engaging with the people, especially at checkpoints. The Hizbah were the religious or moral police, and everyone was scared of them. The third was finance and real estate. This was how the Islamic State controlled money and how the Islamic State controlled territory and properties. To break from the shackles of the corrupt Federal Reserve System and to restore gold and silver as the ultimate measures of goods and services, beginning with the minting of the gold dinar. For Mosulis, we were very surprised at how fast the Islamic State had the functions of media, security and law enforcement, and financial control established in Mosul. 
Which of the Islamic State government services do you think stood out as particularly effective to everyday people? The municipality department and the courts. The municipality department was responsible for things like keeping the streets clean, removing rubbish, fixing problems with the road or fixing street lights. This may not seem like a big deal, but people notice if these things are not being done. Regarding the court, put simply, problems were being resolved. In a society, courts play an essential role in conflict meditation and resolution. One of the big problems in Mosul was that it could take years to get issues through the court. Under Daesh courts, problems were often resolved immediately. What emerges from your description is that the Islamic State is focused on shaping the population's attitudes and behaviours through propaganda, what the Islamic State would call media, and ensuring that it addresses those key functional responsibilities of a government. Secure the population and enforce laws, mediate and resolve civil conflicts, extract resources from the population, for example, through taxation, and then use those resources to support key functions. And remember, Daesh are doing all of this while fighting on multiple fronts across Syria and Iraq. They were fighting against many different enemies too, from local tribes and militias to the Iraqi government and global coalition forces. So Daesh leaders had to make decisions about where to prioritize putting its resources, money, and people. To get an overarching view of the Islamic State as an organization in Mosul, it is important to consider how the group prioritized the roles that it assigned to its personnel. In a way, this allows us to reveal the difference between the Islamic State's stated and actual priorities. Here is Daniel Milton from West Point Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Center. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the group dedicated about 80% of its personnel to fighting on the front lines or carrying out other duties associated with its military effort. However, among the remaining fifth of its personnel, we find a wide array of other ministries in action trying to carry out the day-to-day functions of what a normal state would do. This is the Islamic State system of control. This is how the Islamic State used violence and governance efforts to control the population. The Islamic State is doing something else that is at least equally important. The group is using its governance activities and propaganda to ingrain a system of meaning in the population. It wanted to shape the way people understood the world, themselves, and others through the lens of the Islamic State's ideology. The Islamic State understands that it can implement its system of control, its system of government, onto the population using force and intimidation. It also knows that this will only go so far. But if it can get people to see the world through its system of meaning, by getting people to adopt its ideology, it becomes easier to govern. Why? Because people have a shared identity, a shared lens through which to understand the world. And so other things become comparatively easier, such as recruiting people into its ranks and getting both tacit and active support from the population going forward. It is impossible to exaggerate how important this was to the Islamic State. Living under its occupation, it is 
as everything is designed to ingrain the system of meaning into our minds. Every department had two basic rules. One, to enforce the Islamic State's policies, whether those policies concern real estate, agriculture, law enforcement, justice, or whatever. Two, those activities were designed to reinforce the Islamic State's ideology. Put another way, the Islamic State in Mosul was a propaganda state. Everything worked towards enforcing and embedding Islamic State's propaganda into the minds of the people. There is, perhaps, no better example than the Islamic State's education department. Here is Leela El-Sayed from Hidayah, whose team has engaged in the most extensive study of the Islamic State's Department of Education, its curriculum, and impact on Mosul's youth. In order for ISIS to embed its narratives or what we described as planting its poisonous seeds in the minds of its students, it projected a competitive system of meaning in its textbooks. This forced on students a lens through which they had to perceive the world. We found that education was not just a component of ISIS propaganda. It was actually at the heart of its approach to sustaining its perpetual war. I don't know whether the Islamic State genuinely believed that it could hold Mosul for the long term, but it absolutely tried to exploit this opportunity. The opportunity to use the resources of a state to dig its roots as deeply as possible into the people. And by focusing on children, it was trying to invest in the future. The Islamic State's interpretation of Islam is central to its legitimacy claims. And once again, we need to return to this notion of exploitation in two regards. The first is how the Islamic State ideologically exploited religious concepts, in a sense, stretching their meaning and interpretation to fit its political agenda. Here is Rehan Ismail from the Australian National University. ISIS draws from pre-existing religious traditions. The group invokes history and radicalised religious concepts to justify actions against their enemies. The group looks to the first Saudi state, which was founded in 1744 as a model to be emulated, and Ibn Abdul Wahab, the scholar who at the time legitimised the Saudi state, exercised takfir against his enemies, and this is to the dismay of other Muslims. And drawing from pre-existing traditions, even if those traditions are doctrinally dubious, allows ISIS to offer a veneer of religious legitimacy for its actions. The second is just as important. The Islamic State also exploited the activism and politicking of Islamist groups, such as the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood in Mosul, as elsewhere throughout the Middle East, mainstreamed the concept of an Islamic State and the resurgence of the caliphate, sectarian views, and the justification of violence. Now, to be clear, the Brotherhood interprets these concepts in ways that are somewhat different from how Al-Qaeda and Daesh did. But it's easy to see how some people, both members or simply people exposed to the Brotherhood narrative, could be swayed by the message of jihadist groups who offered the quick realization of what the Brotherhood had theorized for decades. The Brotherhood, in substance, created a, a fertile ideological environment for jihadist groups. That was Program on Extremism Director Lorenzo Vedino. 
It is impossible to talk about the Islamic State from this period without mentioning its propaganda units. The world seemed almost mesmerized at times by its propaganda output, from videos like Flames of War 1 and 2 and Although the Disbelievers Dislike It, to magazines like its English language Dabak and the Arabic language Al-Naba. The Islamic State didn't just centralize propaganda in its strategic thinking in some theoretical way. Its best and brightest spent time working in its media units. In fact, almost all of the Islamic State's top leaders had spent some time working in propaganda roles. When the Islamic State had the chance to control cities, as you said earlier, Omar, it immediately looked to implement what can only be described as a full-spectrum propaganda state. Between 2014 and 2016, propaganda coursed through everything that the Islamic State did on a day-to-day basis, whether violent or non-violent, whether jihad or governance. And I think that this is something that we often forget about. The fact that for every video that was published online on Telegram or Twitter, for every execution that made it into the headlines in Western media, there was so much more happening in the real world, happening in Iraq and Syria. Dawa or outreach officials roaming media kiosks, dozens of them across urban centers, uh, printed newspapers, cinemas. I mean, it was really uh, a huge part of what the Islamic State was about. That was Charlie Winter, an expert on Islamic State propaganda and co-author of The ISIS Reader. It is important for everyone to understand that the Islamic State used the propaganda to manipulate how it was seen by friends and enemies. It wanted to make itself look stronger and more effective than it really was. And, as Audrey Alexander from West Point Combating Terrorism Center highlights now, this included projecting an inflated image of its cyber capabilities. When you look back at the Islamic State's cyber capabilities, it's critical to highlight the disconnect that emerges between ISIS's projection of its abilities compared to its demonstrated skills. In some cases, alleged members of the group conducted activities that were made to look more technically advanced than they were. What is clear through this period is that the Islamic State's propaganda was achieving extraordinary reach and impact. This was evident in how the media responded to the latest Islamic State propaganda release and the way that the group's talking points found its way into the rhetoric of political leaders. It was also evident in the extraordinary, unprecedented wave of foreign fighters that joined the Islamic State's ranks. Here is American University scholar Chelsea Damon. By 2015, there was an estimated number of 30,000 foreign fighters from around 100 different countries who joined the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. The largest of these numbers came from Middle Eastern and North African nations, with Tunisia supplying the highest amount. Foreign fighters also came from Western nations, including Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. The Islamic State had a system in place to process these foreign fighters not just into its ranks and practical skills, but indoctrinated to champion the Islamic State's ideology, as Seamus Hughes details here. At its height, more than a thousand foreign fighters a week were crossing into Syria and feeding into the system. And when they got there, there was a well-worn structure to take them in, very bureaucratic in nature. 
You did three weeks of indoctrination camp, then he'd break you up into groups based on your language. After that, you moved to another camp for three weeks. You received weapons training, explosives training. Given the Islamic State's appalling treatment of women under its control, I'm sure many of our listeners are baffled by how women could possibly want to join the group, let alone travel from the other side of the world to do so. The Islamic State's propaganda appeals to women were crucial. Islamic State propaganda targeting women was overwhelmingly designed to be positive and empowering. But there was a bipolarity at play too. So while its propaganda presented this idealised picture of Islamic State women as mothers, wives and active contributors to the movement's goals, it portrayed other women as corruptors, undermining the Islamic State's agenda. Women were also used in Islamic State propaganda to shame men by portraying women as victims that needed saving or by portraying women as active contributors and later even fighters to shame male inaction. That was Kiri Ingram, a researcher from the University of Queensland, and she highlights yet another disparity between the image of life as shown in the Islamic State propaganda and reality for the people. Devora Margolin from the program on extremism has looked extensively at the experiences of women under the Islamic State occupation. While much has been written about the women traveling to join ISIS, the reality of women's lives under the group's governance is much more complex. The group used its governance of large areas of Syria and Iraq to implement its ideology, which required men and women to practice full gender segregation in society. From the most hardened supporters to those occupied by the Islamic State, every aspect of day-to-day life was controlled as the group tried to regulate both the public and private lives of those under it. Women's movements, women's bodies, and women's free will were regulated. Women required male escorts to carry out even the most menial of everyday activities. And for those victimized by the group, specifically Yazidi and Christian women, the horrors were unspeakable. These perspectives are all vital for understanding not only the Islamic State's agenda in Mosul, but its brutality too. The picture that emerges here is frightening in its brutality, but also its sophistication, the strategic thinking that seems to have underpinned everything. Omar, looking back now on the Islamic State's control of Mosul, what do you want people to know? There is something that the historian, Peter van Ostian, said to me that has stuck with me. I asked him, What was the view from outside as Mosul fell to the Islamic State? Basically, at at first, most of the world wasn't too alarmish about the fact that Mosul and Raqqa fell to the Islamic State. It seemed like something that was passing by. It's only when the Islamic State started their genocide on the Yazidi population in Iraq and later started beheading journalists and aid workers that the uh, international coalition did something. It is only natural that for many of us living in Mosul at the time, we wondered, where is the world? Can anyone see us or care? But then, in talking to Peter, I thought that maybe the world thought like so many Mosulis did, that this would pass, that surely Daesh won't stay not for more than a few weeks or more than a few months. But there is another part of me that thinks that, maybe not all people, but some, 
including those in high places, believe that we deserved what we got. That the Islamic State's success was because people like me, average citizens who just want to live their life, that people like me just let them in or didn't do enough to stop them. That somehow when armies have failed, when politicians have failed, when the international community has gone missing, the average citizens must pay the price and shoulder the blame. Sadly, that is true. There was this sense across parts of Iraq, but also internationally, that somehow the people of Mosul were complicit in the Islamic State's success. These views, shockingly, were also prevalent in government circles too, and it was influencing discussions about how to use force to attack the Islamic State in Mosul. Here is former Prime Minister of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi. Don't forget, most Iraqis outside the occupied territory by Daesh were thinking that those people allowed Daesh to get in and they collaborated, so they, 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 we can't hit them. I said, well, no, come on. Uh, you, you cannot say that. I mean, this is a terrible group. Who, who can organize themselves? How can people rise up? They have to organize themselves. They have to come together. How can they do that? When Daesh is there, this is a terrorist organization. They will not allow it. I know some politicians, even from certain areas, from these areas, member of parliament, were asking me to bomb civilian areas. And they tell me, well, these areas are supporting Daesh. I say, well, well, this is nonsense. These are civilians. They may appear to you as supporting Daesh, but in actual fact, they don't. I mean, we know this from the time Saddam Hussein. I'm sure many would assume this occurred. But to hear such a senior Iraqi government official say this is quite extraordinary. I know that for you, Omar, Mosul I was just as much, perhaps even more so, about boosting the morale of the people. I played very critical messages to the people. I looked at how Daesh communicate and then I made sure that my messages can be more powerful than the messages of Daesh. Wherever Daesh hit the people, I go there and try to heal that wound in order to get back the spirit of the people, to make them feel that even if you cannot resist, at least do not lose the faith and the hope. Mosulai is really a symbol for people. The extraordinary reporting of Mosulai, it's amazing, of course. And I think Mosulai will be remembered as one of the great champions of freedom in the face of murderous authoritarianism. And we will talk about all of that. But the things that you saw every day, this has to take a toll. It'd take a toll on any human being. It just does. But to then add the pressure and stress of actively going out the way you did to report on the Islamic State, to know that they are out there literally searching for you, They are on the streets declaring how they are going to torture and execute you. This is a pressure that must have been suffocating at the time. Of course. But them searching for me kept me focused on what I had to do. It was everything else that I couldn't really process. I thought, maybe I hoped, that with time I will be able to process what I was seeing. What do you mean? When Daesh started 
it's a brutal strategy of spreading fear in the city by executing people publicly. Then my life became difficult because I started witnessing this kind of violence that is beyond my capability and beyond my human capability, beyond my emotions and my feelings. I have seen so many executions. I have seen too much blood to the extent that I still remember that one day I said that all I could see in the city of Mosul is a blood. I saw people being thrown off high buildings. I saw women being, being stoned to death. A young person, his hand was cut off. All of these kind of horrors that I've never imagined myself would be actually happening in reality. I know this is highly personal and that you've never really spoken about it before, but can you talk about what you've described as your worst day? Uh, you asked me about something I don't want to remember, but um, it's a very difficult day, Aurora, to speak about. It's, um, it's the day when, when I decided to end my life. In, 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 in March 2015, it was too much for me. It was, it was, as I told you, like beyond my capacity. I thought I, uh, that I thought that just documenting the history would be, of course, it's a difficult task, but it would haven't, it wouldn't have that much effect on me because I exposed myself intentionally to witness everything happening in the city, including the executions, because I wanted to document the moments, the last moments of those victims, because I believe that they should never be just numbers. They are human lives that was uh, 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 wasted and, 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 and uh, uh, eliminated by Daesh. I even looked when someone, one of them, and that, that day that changed everything in my, in my capacity and how I kind of like collapsed. When he was behaving that victim, I looked at the knife and all, all I could see is the eyes of the victim and then the knife touching the throat of that victim and how the blood was exploding out of that throat. That was too much for me to bear. And the next day, I just decided that this is the end for me. I'm going to end my life. I cannot continue. And the only way to be free is to be dead. So I went, I decided to end my life next to Tigris. We call it the immortal Tigris River. Tigris, yes, Tigris River. Dijla. And... By the way, the river plays the same role of the Prophet Jonah because it's connected to him when he when he uh, supposedly uh, was was sailing with with his ship. He came through Tigris. I don't know how, but uh, but it, it happened that he came through Tigris. Anyway, um, I took my tea. I cut off my beard. I shaved my beard and cut off my hair I put on uh, red and uh, jeans and I was smoking expecting Dash to appear at any moment 
it didn't happen. I felt that I still have more things to do that I, uh, that my end didn't come yet. And I, I still have to continue. And I got some kind of like strength is that I felt strong again because the moment I sat there and was looking at the river, I felt that I am free of all the fears because as I said, like my death would be my freedom. So I was, I was free of all fears and that had, had played a very important rule and it changed it from the worst day into the best day of my life because it kept me continuing the mission of Mosulai. You've been listening to Mosul and the Islamic State, brought to you by the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Mosul and the Islamic State is hosted and co-produced by Omar Mohammed, written and produced by Harar Ingram, with audio editing by Andrew Mines. The music featured at the beginning of each episode is The Curve, which was written and performed by the Maslawi musician Amin Mokdad. If you're interested in finding out more about the research that is featured in this podcast, please check out the ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, published by Hearst and Oxford University Press, The Long Jihad, and a variety of other ISIS-related studies on the Program on Extremism website. And for all of Omar Muhammad's reporting as Mosul I, please visit mosul-i.org.